My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. You see this in Paul's sexuality as well. Paul yes. is is very much, yes. um, in in my opinion, he's suggesting one that uh, passion is for the dirty, dirty Gentiles. Yes, <laughs> uh, because sex is supposed to be holy and uh, with honor, not with the passion of desire. So um, you you need to be playing uh, no none of this Luther Vandross in the bedroom. <laughs> yeah, right. the, uh, the Mormon right. Tabernacle Choir, and that's <laughs> yeah. it. <laughs> Hey, everybody. I'm Dan McClellan. And I'm Dan Beecher. And you are listening to the Data Over Dogma podcast, where we increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and we combat the spread of misinformation about the same. How are things today, Dan? Good, man. I we This is going to be a fun one. I am looking forward to it. I always say that, but this time it's actually <laughs> true. Uh, tell us about our guest. We've got a wonderful guest today. Uh, today we're talking about uh, a friend of mine. I've been involved in a little uh, group of scholars uh, that include Dr. Jennifer Bird, who is a public scholar of the New Testament and early Christianity, and just released a uh, phenomenal book entitled Marriage in the Bible, What Do the Texts Say? And Dun-dun-dun. Uh, Dun-dun-dun, yeah. That's, I think the audiobook so comes with... The audiobook comes with dun dun dun, and every now and then a um, and some other sound effects um, that Dr. Bird recorded herself. But um, we're here to talk about this book and to talk a little bit about what uh, the public needs to know about marriage in the Bible, yeah, uh, and how it is quite a bit different uh, from the way we tend to think about it and the way people tend to. Uh, argue about it. Yeah, Jennifer uh, so. Bird, welcome. Thank you for for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This is such a treat. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, it's yeah. a treat for us. We're very happy to have you here. Um, this is a very timely book. Uh, I think this is uh, something that it is information. It's filled with information that a lot of people, a lot of people in the public, don't really have. But I don't is, know. It kind of seems unnecessary because we all know one man, one woman, <laughs> we're done. I don't know right, what. Right. Why is? Why do we need to why have is there a whole a, book on this? A whole book I about it. Was it. One it man, seems... one vote. Um, but oh, oh, that's different. That's, that's a different thing, Dan. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it is a timely book. The uh, the debates are getting uh, ever more heated about this kind of stuff, and a lot of it retreats back to well, the Bible says right. X. Right. And uh, right. anyone familiar with uh, our social media content knows that uh, we're loath to suggest the Bible really says anything. Um, that's I get called out as a hypocrite for uh, saying, the Bible didn't say anything, we create meaning with the text. And then in another video, I'll be like, the Bible says this. Um, so it's like, look, you want every single video to be like, what, as we create meaning with the Bible, we produce it. Like, yeah. it's a shorthand. Dan, you but, don't um, even let us define words for crying out loud. No, <laughs> nothing means anything ever at all. So I like it. I like it. Yeah. I think a lot of scholars are like, I've got no problem with this. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I I enjoyed this book quite a bit. And as we were talking a little bit before we started recording, you have a lot of little supplementary, uh, a lot of little sidebars and notes, and um, some of them more humorous than um, uh, than others. But there's a lot of great information in here about uh, marriage in the Bible and I think one of the interesting things, particularly uh, when we talk about the Hebrew Bible, but also to some degree in the New Testament, is what word is not anywhere in the Bible uh, related to the concept of marriage. And and you kind of start off talking about this. What word is not really in the Bible? Well, I'm not sure which one you're referring oh, to. Yeah, okay. There are a couple of them. You're talking about husband and wife. I think yeah. that's what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Those two words are not—there isn't a Hebrew word— 
to say differentiate between a woman before she's taken by a man and after there isn't a Hebrew word to denote a difference between a man before he takes a woman and now that he has one in his possession right the way we do yeah. and and that is true in, in the Greek as well that was kind of stunning to me when I started making sure you know it's like I get kind of why it happens in the Hebrew but it's also true in the newer testament that it's still on Aaron Gune it's we don't have a different word to say, I'm talking to a person as a wife. I'm talking to a person as a husband. It's not in there. Like wow. how different would everything be if we removed husband and wife from the entire Bi yeah. Christian Bible, right? Oh, and but that's too raw, Dr. Bird. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my woman, my man. I'm like, yeah, that's yeah. my point. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's when you go through and, and translate this stuff, it's like, yeah, there's this woman and now it's his woman. And um, oh, my woman did this and my man. And, and um, you know, it, you have uh, in Hosea where Adonai says, you will no longer call me. Bali, but you will call me Ishi. And it's like that, you know, Bali, my master, is about as close <laughs> as you get to husband. And and God is like, no, just call me my man, um, because we're getting away from the <laughs> my ball man. Worship, but, <laughs> my yeah. main man. It's but it's only. In, but when we translate husband and wife, it's totally artificial. We are overlaying our right. cultural expectations on the text. And that right. and that includes also the word. Um, that is frequently translated to Mary. You mentioned That's it before. Right. What yeah. is that verb? That one was the big one for me personally. And then yeah. and then I saw the the woman wife thing in Genesis two twenty four. But right, the verb I, I don't have percentages, but the verb that is the most common verb used in the Hebrew Bible that is translated as Mary is to take. And there are three or four other verbs that I address in chapter five um, that are also kind of lesser used, but they also are, I think, even more um, objectifying of women, right? So they're, you know, like you said, um, a reference to Baal or, you know, some form of he will dominate over her mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of a verb, right? So, yeah. and, and the issue I hear people kind of push back on, which I always appreciate, is when it says to take, right, a man goes and takes a woman and now he, she's his, you know, well, we say that in wedding ceremonies today. Do you take this man? Do you take this woman? I'm like, yeah, but it's not the same, right? We're not talking about a mutuality and we aren't talking about this kind of, do you take into your embrace and share your lives together in a loving and, yeah. you know, mutually supportive way? No, it's, it's the same thing. It's the same verb that's used when God commands Abraham to take his son and go sacrifice him. It's the same take, right? It's just take. <laughs> And that's and that's what we see with with the uh, the rape of Dinah. It says he took her lakat right. and lakat, and lakat. lay with her. Right. And then other times it's it's chazak to to seize or to grasp, or other times it's tafas also to seize or or to grasp. And that's always about or that's that's in reference to sexual assault. But there's right. a there's a very thin uh, distinction between the two. Right, right. There's also a verb, um, the yashav, but it's, you know, kind of forcing a person to live with you, right? <laughs> Again, not, we, we could talk about whether there's consent there if you want, but it's still just living together. It's not this the same kind of loving, the framework that we have for the concept of marriage today is being laid on top of these verbs that I do not think, right, reflect what we mean by those things. So Yeah. And I, I think um, you raise an interesting point as well about there's a directionality, there's a power differential here, and this goes to the fundamental conceptualization of sex in the ancient world. That's sex right. was not a mutual activity that no. two consenting agents no. engaged in together. It was no. something that an agent did to an object. Yes. It was, there was yes. a, a hierarchy of domination, yes. and the man was at the pinnacle of that hierarchy, and so the person underneath them on that hierarchy was the sexual object on which right. they acted. And the, yes. the, the will, the agency of the, um, the object was just immaterial. It did not matter. Precisely. Precisely. <laughs> That's why we keep saying, you know, we keep seeing that he goes into her and he does this thing to her, right? And all of the language. It's an interesting piece too, because that the idea that now that that's in the biblical texts related to these relationships is that now they are joined together and you're 
you belong, you know, she belongs to you for good, right? And we we perhaps see some sort of trying to tend to this relationship in a kind way, but it's still founded on this idea, right? This basic idea that a man is taking a woman, marking her as his territory by the act of sex, right? I I remember the first time I used that language um, at the church that I grew up in. So I went back as you know as a scholar forty years, thirty years later, you know, and I'm looking at these people who taught me Sunday school, and I made this comment about marking his territory and. One of the guys just went red in the face. He said, you sound like a like you're referring to a dog peeing on a tree. And I said, that's exactly what I meant. That's what I wanted you to take from that. Yeah. 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 And, and the is- passive – well, the active passive thing too about sex in general um, in the ancient world, right? We still see it in the time of the first century. It's not like Jesus and the folks then are dealing – thinking about it differently necessarily. It's a really important piece of the picture to me. This – you know, the way sex is talked about um, – and, and therefore, who's at fault and all those other pieces. But Dan, I think you had a different thing you wanted to say next. So didn't want to interrupt you there. <laughs> no, no. We Look, <laughs> this is all about you. We don't want to interrupt you. <laughs> no, no. Uh, it's good. We didn't prepare I, a show. So we're, no, we're yeah, counting on okay. you for the content. You, you're, you're all we got. <laughs> awesome. Well, okay. I, I was, I, you know, it, it occurs to me, it's funny because I've heard people uh, when they talk about like the Ten Commandments, and it seems like there's this huge omission of like, you know, they've got all of these main things, but there's no sense of like, thou shalt not rape in that, yeah. which seems like, which seems to a modern person, like there's a big omission, but w- was there even a concept of, of, of that? Uh, in w- w- You know, it sounds like what we're talking about here is, you know, the objectification, the, the total object- objectification, at least of women uh, in, in that time period. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I, I don't know if there's an actual verb, Dan, the other Dan, Mac, you probably know if there's a verb that is typically translate. I think I tried to look into it once and it's hard to follow for rape specifically. So the, the closest I think you get is Anna, which is to violate um, but, but that has to do with the woman's basically viability as a commodity. Right. Um, right. and because it is, it is very transactional and the, the legislation that has to do with sexual assault treats it as a property crime. It is, it is not the agency, right. the autonomy of the victim. It is right. the fact that this, uh, basically spoils her as goods right. either for her father who stands to, uh, benefit from from her marriage through the bride price, or mm-hmm. her husband, who is her owner, more or less. Right, right. The issue so, of yes, have you spoiled the goods? Yeah, and you know one you know one of the things I try to talk about when I is around this concept of virginity, right? This this human construct of labeling a female body specifically as one thing, and you know at one point that is actually changed. Right. That's the way it's talked about. And there are people who still talk about it that way. Um, I, I think today, just to be clear, I think today people talk about it two different ways. They talk about I am a virgin as in I haven't done that yet. But then they also talk about losing one's virginity. And that's the piece that is very biblical to me. Right. That's the piece that the Bible t- talks about uh, this state that can be lost or changed or whatever. And that is fully human construct as an element of controlling women's bodies. I mean, there's, you know, and the more you look into this, or at least the more I think about it over the years and look into the, you know, the physiology behind it, right? Like this concept that a woman needs to show proof of the evidence of her virginity on her, the night that she is taken, mm. right? And the man sleeps with her, right? Well, what's the evidence we all know, right? The, or the, we know, right? The evidence is that she bled. Like, okay, let's talk about that, Right. The evidence of a woman's, uh, air quotes, virginity is the fact that her hymen just wasn't prepared. That's it, right? There's no, you know, this is a violation. This is a form of small form of violence being done to a woman's body that doesn't need to happen. But that's all of these ideas around claiming territory, being the first on the scene. I I did. I, I thought about like people that talk about, oh, that... The virgin mountainside with no ski, you know, nobody's skied on it yet. And I want to be the first to ski on it. Like, that's what we're talking about, but with a woman's body. And 
And I, in the book, I, you know, I decided to get really raw about it all just to kind of make the point, right? We're talking about a particular part of a woman's body, whether or not a man has interacted with it, right? We're talking about her vagina, but the reason we care is both men's egos, right? In terms of wouldn't want to be with, gosh, I, it's really hard to talk about some of this sometimes. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, oh, somebody else has had sex with her. I don't, she's tainted goods. Do you realize what you're saying when you say that she's tainted goods, by the way? You're just saying that she's been penetrated by a man's penis. Like, this is about men's penises over and over again. Biblically <laughs> speaking, it drives me crazy. <laughs> I have this little clip when I was, I created a video series first and then I wrote the book. And I had I had you've to put been, it in You've there. been releasing those clips have, little by little, or, have, yeah, yeah, a little bit. I, the videos themselves are like fifteen to eighteen minutes um, long, and I've been re- releasing clips from them. Yeah, you know, and it's like, okay, people, can we just be honest? When you say that a woman is defiled because she's had sex, you're really talking about a man's penis is defiling her. Can we just be clear about that? Yeah. <laughs> There's no. nothing wrong with your penises. They look funny. They are a little bit odd looking. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. But don't demonize them. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. that's what you're doing in this weird back end thing. And it's all about territory. It's who's, you know, and it's like, come on, people, let it go. Yeah. Let it go. Let it, let's see what's going on and just well, let that go. And it's problematic. Like that, the problematic nature of that conception conception of virginity and and of you know sort of the defilement of a woman's body yes. persists to this day and Precisely. you know in in churches across you know i i know that in uh in my neighborhood and you know the the girls in my church were raised with this idea that totally uh that that you know you, nobody wants a chewed piece of gum or <laughs> nobody wants uh, you know, right? an apple that's already had bites taken out of it or whatever right. horif- horrific metaphor mm-hmm. they come up with. Mm-hmm. The boys were given none of these Nothing. lectures. That's right. None of them. So why I don't know. Why? Why wasn't I gum? Why? Do, exactly. Why don't I get to be gum? Exactly. I don't understand it. It's right. uh, it's, exactly. it's, it's it's a it's a huge double standard that persists. Right. Uh, and part of that is because of how people are looking at the Bible, or at least how they've been told to look at the Bible. Precisely. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Um, I, w- I wanted to bring up with you, I, I found uh, there's a website called thegospelcoalition.org. <laughs> it sounds very official. 
Uh, well, Gospel, they, Gospel Coalition is a well-known organization. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, th- and they have an article called A Biblical View of Marriage. Oh and gosh. I wanted to run by you the first... Uh, the first. Oh, please do. Um, Let's do this. Uh, they have a definition and then a okay. summary of stuff. Okay. But I'm just going to read you the, this definition and you tell me all the ways that they are absolutely correct. <laughs> which I'm take, sure I'm, I'm okay. certain okay, that it's going to be. The biblical view of marriage, it says here, is of a God-given, voluntary, sexual and public social union of one man and one woman from different families for the purpose of serving God. Uh, So... Did they say anything about procreation in there? I didn't catch it. It didn't. No, no, no. It it didn't actually get to that. Uh, It just said the purpose was serving God and that, uh, yeah... Yeah. Vol- yeah. So I mean, I I figure you you might have some things to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> you just just drop that so nicely, Dan. <laughs> I, might, I might have a few things to say. Um, I do. I like. Can we comment on the fact that they said sexual first and then public? And like, wait, what? And, um, <laughs> yeah, the joining was- of those two things together: sexual, public, social. Yes! I got creeped like- out. Yeah, 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 a little bit concerned. Yeah, well, that's actually, you know, the first four, you know, the first four books of this, first four chapters of this book, sorry, um, are about addressing basically where they get those ideas, right? When people use that definition that you just read for us, Dan, um, really, usually there are four passages and maybe some additional ones, but there are four passages that people are definitely turning to. And it's a total or, or of, one passage in three quotations of that passage. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Right. So it's a total of seven biblical verses, and one of them is quoted, tw- you know, twice. So it's you know we could maybe delete two of those verses and say five. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So it's so you know just for your watchers, listeners, um, Genesis one twenty eight, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, Genesis two twenty four. I will I will quote the way I think it should read, which is therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his woman, and the two become one flesh. Matthew nineteen four to six, which um, I always kind of end up requoting that incorrectly, but it's um, the, you know it's the debate with the Pharisees about which reason is Jesus okay with for divorce, and mm-hmm. and he says, have you not read that it says, and gen, you know, and he quotes Genesis one twenty seven. In male, female, he created them, and then he quotes Genesis two twenty four, right? Um, and then, so what man has joined together, let no one separate. Noteworthy, that is nothing new from Jesus. By the way, he's engaging a debate, age old debate. So that's not even new. What he offers is new, is different, which is what I get into in that chapter. And then Ephesians five thirty one and thirty two, which is again a quoting of Genesis two twenty four, and then this really stunning comment about this is a mystery, but I'm comparing it to Christ and the church and how that laid the foundation for sacramental language um, much later. But so that's it. That's what people mean. And so they usually are looking at that to say God ordained, air quotes, uh, marriage but to be between one man and one woman um, and that it needs to be procreative, which is where people get hung up, right, on certain types of marriages today. And that no divorcing. Divorcing is a sin, right, mm. according to Matthew 19, 4 or 6 or whatever. And then Oddly this- enough, I'm seeing a lot on social media about getting rid of no-fault divorce. Like mm. the Christian nationalists are really up in arms about the uppity women who, who get to divorce men and they want to <laughs> outlaw it. And it is— I don't know where this comes from. Not odd at all, actually. (laughs) Well, no, when you pair it with all the different things that are, the other things that are happening around bodily autonomy for women, right? Yeah. They're about to outlaw mifeprestone, which is the drug that's used for terminating an unplanned pregnancy. Like outlawing it. Are you, I can't even process, my head will explode with anger. Like I just, so I'm not surprised. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, so, so that's yeah. So that's usually where people mean, right? And, right? and they make this definition, such as what you read. So, but there's certain surely there's no counter arguments to be made from the Bible that that those aren't <laughs> the only way that the Bible sees marriage. Well, there's that, 
Right. No, there's that. It's, there are plenty of examples. We don't have the people of Israel without two, at least two generations of polygamy, right? I mean, right. we have – well, that's not true. We have the, – the main patriarch is forces himself on a, an enslaved woman in his home. Her children actually become their enemies, I suppose, even though they're cousins, which is odd. Um, <laughs> right. And so we don't have the tribes without multiple women, right, involved to specifically in the primary – wife, woman role, and then two who are enslaved in their household. And we just looked the other way um, at this particular example because it was necessary and that was back then. But no, let's just be honest about that, right? Um, what if you heard about neighbors of yours who were doing this? Or what if you thought about more recent you know, countries or something establishing themselves this way? And this is how the, you know, the head of the, the country did things. You know? How would you think about them? You know, would you think about that differently than you have been taught to think about Jacob doing this kind of a thing? And you've been taught I to mean, excuse it, it, right? It sounds very Handmaid's Tale. Oh, um, for sure. To have a patriarch who impregnates uh, the um, all the the women, yeah. all the women, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. And, so we have that angle, right? There's no. This is this is bollocks, right? One man, one woman. Come on, people. But also. <laughs> You know, go ahead. You- well, I, I was just going to say that the one man, one woman, that's one, there's nothing prescriptive going on in Genesis 2.24 at all. It doesn't describe any kind of ceremony. It doesn't describe any change in their relationship. It's just a change in, in it's just the two of them um, pair bonding. Right. Um, and, right. Uh, and it is happening while polygamy is normative. Totally. And totally. so it is yeah. to, the notion that it is prescribing one man and one woman is already, that's a non-starter. That's not going on at all in this passage. It's not. And I think actually I I enjoy talking about Genesis 128 a a great deal because, you know, Genesis 122, if we're going to read it that way, let's just read it as what it's saying, right? Okay, well, God also said in Genesis 122 to the fish of the sea and the birds of the air to be fruitful and multiply. Like, is that a command to marry? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I, and I, I think you could you could also interpret this not as a command. It's just a, a prefix form of the verb, and and I think there's a there's an interesting case to make that this is a blessing because it says, mm-hmm. "And he blessed mm-hmm. them and mm-hmm. said." Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. not I'm blessing you by telling you what to do. <laughs> I know. It's like you could you could very legitimately translate it, and he blessed them and said, "May you uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. multiply uh-huh. and and mm-hmm. um, fill the earth." And so it's yeah. it's doesn't have to be a command in any in any way shape or form whatsoever. Mm. And let's be very clear: nobody needed to be told. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've seen the Blue Lagoon. They didn't need they didn't need an instruction book or somebody they, wagging their finger, right? No, nor did the birds of the air or the fish of the sea, right? Nobody right. needed. And so that's your the blessing angle. I think is really lovely. But also then, again, I think as a way to try to drive things home when we are about how selective we're being, if we're just focusing on 128, who here knows what 129 says? I happen to because I've been studying this, but, you know, it's (laughs) it's the verse that says we should all be vegan. Mm. And so, you know, you want to make an argument for this is for all time, but that isn't. Well, you know, in chapter six, God makes it okay to eat or whatever. <laughs> and I'm like, well, then let's talk about other biblical references that challenge the idea of being of being procreative, which comes straight from Jesus's mouth, by the way. Yeah. So we do have biblical challenges to this be fruitful command, and it's Jesus's. Like, why are we not taking that more seriously? <laughs> Well, and I think that's a that's a great point. There, the the text is not univocal. I mean, just between Genesis one twenty eight and two twenty four, you've got two entirely distinct creation accounts. Right, right. And so, when we impose that presupposition of univocality, we've got to hierarchize the passages. And so, you would think that Jesus's would take precedence because everything else, anytime Jesus says anything, that's um, that's different from the Hebrew Bible. You listen to Jesus. You don't listen exactly. to the Hebrew Bible. Except here, it's like, well, we kind of want it to be the other way, so we're going to say <laughs> no that. And and where Jesus says, "Hey, um, lop it off," if you know the real ones are doing it, um, <laughs> we got to say, well, uh, I think he was exaggerating there, so we're right, we're going to ignore right. him there. Yeah, um, exactly. 
Exactly. Yeah, and you can do this with, you know, and the same with Genesis 2.24. And those t- those two are the foundation for this, f- this general biblical marriage idea, right? And so I think it's helpful to reframe those two. The second one, of course, is, is quoted in the other two as well. But, you know, Genesis 2.24 is, I want to reiterate what you were saying, Dan. Um, but also, it's I think it's helpful to look at what does that chapter that particular creation story trying to do, trying to talk about, right? I think it is more about a human human desires for relationships and and two twenty four. Sorry, I'm just gonna yes. We're not we're not we're not actually laying these out for the people who gotcha. aren't following in their Bible at home. So two twenty four yes. is uh, therefore a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife and woman. they become right. one flesh. Woman. His woman. Thank you. No, no, that's a good correction because. Yeah. Uh, this, this it, dumb right? NRSV doesn't know what it's talking about. And and something that I, I taught a, a class on biblical creation accounts a little bit ago, and one of the things I raised is that there's some parallels between what's going on in Genesis 2 and Gilgamesh. And um, for instance, in Gilgamesh, um, he's got this friend who is just a wild man. He's kind of the um, not civilized um, Enkidu. And what does it take? It takes a sex worker mm-hmm. to... He has to have sex, and then he kind of matures. He's like, okay, I'll straighten my tie. I'm a man now. And she is like, okay, now put on some clothes. Okay, now you're, you're getting there. And um, you can do it. You can do it. And so there's a sense in which the uh, the maturation of humanity in Genesis 2 and 3 is following a similar pattern uh, because they uh, they eat and they have their eyes open, but then— it is the pair bonding that allows them to um, kind of take the next step and further mature. And so the story is really an ideology for maturation, for leaving the home of your father and for starting an independent pair bonded household. Mm-hmm. And so it's not it's not saying, look, this is how marriage was created. It's saying, right. look, this is how humanity matures okay. and you become an adult and you go out and you pair bond and you start your own household and you leave right. your parents alone. Yeah. Um, I feel so- like this is Dan talking to his children right now. <laughs> I feel like Dan is like, I hear that Gen Z, they're, they're not leaving their households and stuff. My kids better get out of here. Right. I actually had a, I had students that in my classroom in the, my first teaching position that were in their 60s because of the nature of the, the college. And I had one woman just say, this could be about getting... Um, kicking the kids out of the nest, or it could also be about comforting mothers or fit parents at the sadness of losing that. Um, yeah. oh, so yeah, all the things, I think all, yeah, I think all the things are potentially yeah. in the mix, but I did like when she said, yeah, we're just kicking them out of the nest. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <It's Fly>. <laughs> yes. It's your turn. Yeah. But yeah, that's a whole different way of looking at it than to say God is ordaining this. God is, or the scriptures say that this is only this. You know, it's just a different way of looking at it. And I think for a lot of people, the first few steps of this whole conversation need to be what is it you think the Bible is and is not? And you need to work through that pretty well um, in order to be able to see or even entertain the idea that this is not some sort of prescription. It's not some sort of mm-hmm. declaration from God. This is, these are stories that are coming out of necessity and needs and desires and, you know, all the, all the things. And that's a very human creation. And that can be very threatening for a lot of people to say that it's human created and, but it's yeah. true. So how do we get you there? Right. <laughs> yeah. And that brings up, you, you've mentioned uh, Matthew 19 uh, mm-hmm. a number of times, and we've talked about um, Jesus is, is uh, citing Genesis 1 and 2 in this question about divorce. Uh, but then Jesus makes this statement, and I, I wonder if it might not be an opportunity to pivot a little bit into the idea that we see in the New Testament that um, I, I think comes into Greco-Roman period Judaism and early Christianity from a Greek philosophical worldview, that uh, sexual desire is a product of the base flesh and is something that is to be avoided, because what is the... Um, what is this kind of higher law that Jesus points out in Matthew 19, where that kind of throws the disciples for a loop there? You talk a bit about this as well in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, 
His that one piece that you're referring to is when he says in verse nine, which is not a part of what people tend to quote, right? Right. <laughs> and I say to you, whoever divorces his woman except for unchastity and marries another commits adultery. Um, mm. And you know that's why, you know, that's the, kind of driving the nail in the coffin on why divorce is a sin. But that to me, you know, and to be honest, Dan, I hadn't taken the passion, like the element that you just mentioned in terms of the Greco-Roman pieces of all of this, I'm I'm looking at it just through the lens of let's take seriously what he's saying here, right? When you, to to divorce your, your partner and marry another, you're going to commit adultery. It is so clear if you can just sit with it, right? Just see it, that we're talking about sex. This is only about sex. This isn't about divorce is a problem because it, it it's hard. It hurts family. It pulls people apart. Like it's hard for resource wise. It's hard on the children. It's hard. Like it's difficult. It's not ideal. <laughs> That's not the issue. The issue is this man has claimed this woman and now you're going to go cheat on it. Like, that's it. And so when I, you know, to to see that Jesus is affirming that can be really hard for some people. <laughs> it was actually a little startling for me to to wrap my head around the fact that, yeah, yeah, you know what? There are times when Jesus says stuff that just not okay with me. And that, yeah. you know, like, I don't know. Most of them in Matthew, <laughs> um, probably. <laughs> yes, actually. <laughs> There's that. Matthew's a bit of a Judaizer who's, oh, who's um, yeah. kind of uh, yeah. escalating things. Yeah. It's like, no, yeah. no, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of Isn't the Pharisees. Enough. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And also like the references to enslaved people to t- make a point about the, you know, all the things about the kingdom and uh, the coming kingdom. But but so so let's sit with this. Jesus is well-trained by his own scriptures, and he's focusing on what we call marriage. He's focusing on that relationship through the angle or the lens of just the sex act. And then we're nailing it down, putting it in canon. We're teaching people about that. And we're not reflecting on what's actually, you know, we're not reflecting on what's being said and the part of that that I think is really harmful, right? And the part of that that, you know, purity culture picked up on very well in the last 30 years and the, all the shame around ending a monogamous relationship. It's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> are you kidding me? You know, but then he goes on, and this is what was truly, I mean, rocked my world, I think, when I stumbled across this article talking about the next two, three verses. uh, When he says, so his disciple, in in, continuing in Matthew 19, starting in verse, um, verse 10, his disciple said to him, If such is the case of a man with his woman, it is better not to marry. As in, if we can't divorce if we want to, then maybe we shouldn't marry to begin with. Yeah. And Jesus doesn't talk him off that ledge. I I think that's hilarious, honestly. Mm. <laughs> Do you know, like, can we put that in writing? Yeah. <laughs> Some his disciples say maybe it's better not to marry to begin with. And he comes and, right over the top. <laughs> and he he agrees with it and he and then he adds another layer. Like yeah. and he says, Not everyone can accept this teaching, but only those to whom it is given. Again, that kind of comment you made, Dan, about it being like, you know, for the special ones. But there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by others. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. I, I remember suggesting <laughs> suggesting to, you know, promise at Promise Keepers conventions having a Matthew nineteen tent for castration. Like Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. You don't do you, you don't need saying? a ring. You don't <laughs> yeah. need to put a ring on a necklace. Just yeah. go uh uh just, yeah. <laughs> and doesn't this just slightly make the th- whole thing about math about Genesis one twenty eight a little bit challenging? Like procreate or or cut them off like which one is it this is from jesus yeah. well and you you see this in paul's sexuality as well paul yes. is is very much yes. um in in my opinion he's suggesting one that uh passion is for the dirty dirty gentiles yes <laughs> uh, because sex is supposed to be holy and uh with honor not with the passion of desire so you, um, you need to be playing uh, no none of this Luther Vandross in the bedroom. Be playing <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the Mormon right. Tabernacle Choir, and that's <laughs> yeah, it. <it's>, uh, <laughs> and um, but Paul, uh, a, a lot of people have tried to find a concern for procreation in Paul, 
And it's not there. It's Paul not could not there. care less about procreation mm-hmm. because like the author of Matthew, Paul's expecting everything to, to end. Yeah, to end quick. Yeah. Right. Which is why um, Matthew has, um, you know, woe to the ones who are with child. Right. Um, and so don't get pregnant. And Paul says, this is my rule in all my congregations. You stay in whatever conditions you were when God called you. Um, and so sex is obviously not for procreation here. And so right. what is it for? I think Paul says, if you can't hack celibacy, go ahead and get married. And, and the sex should be prophylactic. It should be um, right. you know, good for keeping down the urges. As, exactly. Um, Put a lid as, on it, not right. where you get to indulge it. And then Matthew, or the God, the author of Matthew, has Jesus basically endorsing the same idea. Yeah. Hey, man, if uh, if you really want to be pious, um, this is the way to go. Yeah, and in the book, you talk about how scholars have long interpreted this as uh, it's like, well, it doesn't really make much sense if they're talking about actual. Uh, willful castration. It seems like it's just a a vow to a celibate life or something like that. But early, we have examples of early Christians who castrated themselves. It's it's absolutely taken seriously by people yeah. for the first three centuries. The very first. This was news to me. Uh, you know, all these things is so fun to discover when you're not trying <laughs> to prove anything, but you just sort of looking into <laughs> yeah. it. And you're like, oh my gosh. Um, that the very first decree at the Nicene Council, so the very first ecumenical council, right? Yeah. We all know about the creed that came out of it, but I didn't yeah. know. I don't think they I read this in seminary. Point one. Yes. And the very first point was if you have castrated yourself, you cannot be a leader in the church. This is the year 325, people, right? Like this is not, this is, it was so out of hand. <laughs> That's kind of funny, a little pun. Um, that, that they had to make a comment about, like they had to make a declaration about it. People were taking it seriously. And the, and the other thing is this isn't celibacy, right? Just because a man doesn't have testes doesn't mean he's not sexually active. Right. Newsflash, right? (laughs) What that also tells us though, is that people tend to think, um, I hope you're okay with me just being this blatant about things. Um, Lay it out there. We'll worry about the advertisers later. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. They don't listen to the show. But also your com- right, but also your uh, comfort or discomfort here. But you know, when people say that because he doesn't have testes, he's not having sex, that that tells us you were thinking of sex as one act, right? Mm-hmm. Penetrating right. a vagina or an orifice. But and so that makes me really sad for all these people who have really dull sex lives. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, like it's more than that. And also, sometimes men without testes can still get an erection. All of the different things. And and then what this article I read by Hester, you know, reminded me of, which was, you know, that in the first century, um, you know, eunuchs were, had reputations, right? Earned or not, they had reputations for being sexually active with both men and women. Mm. Um, and women over the centuries very much valued having sex with eunuchs because of the, you know, automatic, you know, birth control. Um, so the I and then you also look at the way eunuchs are talked about in the writings. Again, their language is quite rude and and denigrating, right? But the, this monstrous, you know, third ver, third version of humanity, right? They're not fully male. They're not female. There's some of both. There's this is a third. It's not ever clearly said a third gender, but we're talking mm-hmm. about human bodies that mm-hmm. look like both or neither. And we're talking about humans who are th- believed to be sexually active with men and women. Like, even if that isn't what Jesus is getting at, right? Even if that wasn't on the mind of the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, yada, 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 that is also being put out there on the table for us to consider because. Yeah. He is affirming these people who were ostracized, who were, you know, like there's this piece to it all that is stunning to me that people do not take seriously. I remember and, having it. Oh, go ahead, Dan. No, ahead. no. I was, um, I was just going to say, and and you know, everybody is negotiating with these texts. And so right, people right, are bringing exactly. their ideologies to the text and no doubt Folks who were um, in that segment of society would have used this as a proof text for uh, affirming uh, their ideas about sexuality and these right. things and, and sex. Right. And so 
and I, I'm not aware of any indication that a bunch of Christians went around going, how dare you? Um, these, these people over there are misusing Matthew 19. And you, you mentioned Hester. I just, for the listeners, I just yeah. want to mention that's David Hester, uh, journal for the study of the new Testament, eunuchs and the post-gender Jesus, Matthew nineteen twelve, and transgressive sexualities is the paper that um, you referenced there. I think I actually make that article available on my website. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm not sure if I should, but I have. So. Well, it's, it's out there <laughs> it's now. It's linked so. there. Yeah, it's linked <laughs> there because it's go. so okay. good. And he references really important um, other scholarship about sexualities and eunuchs in the first century. And, and it's great stuff in terms of other religious traditions and their use of and appreciation of, of castrated men. And so you might want to, I was going to ask you at the end of the, the interview, but tell, tell everybody what your website is right now. Sure. Just so that they can go and look for it. Thank you. Yeah, it's my full name. So it's Jennifer with two N's, Grace, G-R-A-C-E, Bird, B-I-R-D, dot com. Okay, yeah, good. Thank you. That's a, yeah. that's a good place for people to go, apparently, and get links to, uh, some, to some awesome... Uh, some scholarship that it's really important yeah. when I reference it in a... Like when I reference it in my live streams or something like that, yeah. um, you know, things that have been shared publicly, I'll, I'll make available there kind of thing. And there, and and this is something I'm enjoying seeing is that there are scholars who are beginning to use uh, online spaces to supplement their publications. So saying, you know, there are more footnotes, or you can go access resources yeah, and things nice. like that on on the website. So, um, so I think that's that's wonderful to see. Thanks. I a question I get an awful lot is uh, we have Paul talking an awful lot about pornea. Um, and, and a lot of people want to know what all does this entail? Does this include premarital sex? Um, are you able to just kind of talk about kind of, uh, when they're using this word, what does this seem to, to refer to? Are they drawing lines around it or is this generally in reference to things like sex work or to adultery or, uh, or things like that? Um, yeah, the scholar, excuse me, the scholars are pretty... Um, are very much not of a single mind on this. Um, what is it that you find detestable, right? It might be different from what someone else finds un- inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, I have not yet seen someone who has been able to say pornea is this and, and with any kind of definitive, respectable kind of a way. So, yeah. okay. So, right. Do they, do they mean sex work? Do they mean sex outside of marriage? Um for those uh, yeah. of us who who don't have any ancient Greek, can we just say uh, how has how has this word been translated in the various translations? Like what are what 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 are we most likely to see in our English translations when this when this word it comes up? Sexual immorality, fornication, oh, fornication, okay. fornication. That's the that's the big one. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the the most that's, common one. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so what do we mean that by that? Right. What do, is yeah. it? Is it having sex in your car in public? Is it right? I mean, I, I'm being serious, though, like in a playful way. Right. Like, well, what yeah, do you even mean by that? The, for many people, this could mean oral sex. Right. Or anal right. sex or intercrural exactly. sex. It could mean anything that is not what your social identity determines exactly. to be. Sex that I don't like or yes. sex, that, yeah. sex that I find Dan. dirty. Beecher, that is exactly right. And when you see someone like Paul saying it, that just raises some fun questions because man who <laughs> he didn't claims, like any kind of sex. Exactly. Oh. And he claims to not be having any. So why are we taking any advice on sex from him? Like why? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and sure, he's probably drawing from his Hebrew Bible, you know, I, concepts and ideas. And sure, what he's being exposed to as he travels around, you know, the Roman Empire, I certainly he's gonna be having go figure, knee-jerk reactions, right, to some practices that he finds detestable. Yeah. Um, but this is a guy who needed to relax a little bit. We're taking sex advice from a guy who clearly gets the icks from all sex. Exactly. At least and, it seems that way. Yeah, and and this raises a, a concern. A, a lot of people tend not to think about this when they're coming up with their rhetoric for defending their identity politics using the Bible as a proof text, but... <laughs> Our understanding of of morality is is governed in large part by our own experiences. Totally, and and a totally. a man who claims to be celibate, whether that's because he is asexual or because he is um, a uh, a widower who has, has sworn it off, or for whatever reason, 
<laughs> this is a man who is not having the experiences that most other people are having and yet presumes to dictate to them Precisely. what is right and wrong based on his own perception of uh, of those things. And so I've I've got a number of videos on on my channel that are basically like saying explicitly Paul's sexuality has absolutely no relevance. His his sexual ethic has absolutely no relevance to us today because it's built on a lot of these very outdated conceptualizations of sex as a base urge, a product of the flesh, which is evil, as opposed to the spirit, which is good, and um, in many ways is uh, is just rationalizing Greco-Roman Jewish conceptualizations of morality, mm-hmm. which in many ways uh, are phenomenally outdated and even harmful. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and the question of sex before marriage um, as, a, as a sin also comes up a lot. And the, the two verses that people tend to turn to to justify that belief that it is a sin is Genesis 2.24, mm-hmm. because the translation will say, therefore a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his, oh, we're going to go ahead and get them married now because we know they're going to have yeah. sex next, right? Yeah. But that's not what the Hebrew is actually doing, right? And it's just coming together. And then and then the Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, which I could turn to if you'd like me to, just to... Um, to read it, but it's, I think many people are familiar with the concept of what he's saying. Um, I've talked to so many people in the last few months who have been, who were just, you know, deeply shamed by, um, by these, these ideas, right. In in first Corinthians seven, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's well for a man not to touch a woman. I mean, this is what, this is what you're talking about, Dan, right. People are starting to say, you're not starting, but in this community, they're talking about, maybe it's better for, you know, my husband and I not to have sex. We're holier. We will be, you know, we're, we're, we're having, we are containing ourselves better. We are mastering our own passions in ways that we didn't before. And this is a good thing. Right. And so somebody wants to know if that's true. And so Paul's response is, you know, to address all the possible, you know, iterations of how that might play out or what it might look like, but you get this, but because of cases of sexual immorality, Again, Beecher, back to your question and your point, right? What what exactly does Paul mean by that? Each man should have his own woman and each woman her own man. Uh, the, the man should give to his woman her conjugal rights and likewise the woman to her man. And that's all husband and wife in my English. But And then, you know, and that's used in very controlling ways. You belong to me, you know, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the Sorry, the woman, but the man does. Likewise, the man does not have authority over his own body, but the woman does. This is awful, right? If he, I do think he meant some, they meant something mutually loving and supportive, but it has been used for sure over the centuries to, you're mine. You you belong to me, woman. Yeah. You you owe me sex whenever I want it. Whenever I want it. Exactly. And I talked to people who felt, who've been just, you know, terribly beaten down by that, that they were supposed to. And I see it all all the time online right now. It's kind of frightening. But the part that we're also talking about here is to the unmarried and to the widows, I say it's well for them to remain unmarried as I am. But if they are not practicing self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. So that's the idea that people take to say, see, sex before marriage is a sin. I do think Paul is saying you should only be having sex in marriage, but he's also coming from this perspective of the way he's talking about bodies, passions, desires, and also the whole concept of around, you know, um, marriages specifically um, being defined by sex, right? So that we're not talking about all the other parts of a relationship when we're talking about marriage. If you've got, you know. Um, those are the two passages that people turn to to say, see, the Bible says that, but but people are dramatically over, overlooking a really important two chapters in Leviticus yeah. that lay out all of these different, you know, relationships that a man cannot go have sex with, a woman can't have sex with. People tend to focus on 18, Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13. Because those are the ones that say, do not lie with a man as you lie with a woman. It's an abomination. You know, one of them says to put you to death. But the, but the rest of those chapters, or at least 15 verses in those chapters, 
are telling hetero men which women they can't go have sex with. Not no. talking about marriage. We're talking about the fact that men are having sex with people that they don't that don't belong to them. And so we're just going to put some boundaries on it. Like, can we be clear <laughs> about this, please? Well, and I and I think this raises an interesting point about uh, marriage in the Hebrew Bible that a lot of people don't recognize. Adultery did not mean that a man could not go have sex with an unmarried right. woman, even right. if he was already married. Right. He could do that as much as he pleased. Exactly. He could not. Uh, it was, but he could not do it with someone who was, uh, you know, his his father's wife or his sister. Or uh, there are a, a bunch of boundaries that are set. But adultery meant. You couldn't um, have sex with another man's wife. Right. Uh, it did not mean you could not go have sex with um, a woman, woman who was unmarried. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It was, and in fact, there's there's a tradition um, that goes back to the Hebrew Bible that the act of sex is the act of claiming yes, someone as precisely. as a wife, and that so is um, which means yeah. a man could not engage inappropriately in premarital sex because. The moment of sex is the moment of marriage, and so depending on within that that tradition, that stream, except for when he doesn't want it to be true. I mean, that's right. I mean, that's just it. That is when he he does that, and then he hates her. Is what the the text (laughs) says, right? Or just you know, he's still he's doing it, and he just doesn't. It doesn't count, or it's just the concubine, or it's just the whatever. And there are all these exceptions to that rule. But yes, that is how you know that she belongs to this man, as he has had sex with her. Yeah, it's almost as if you can't have sex before marriage. Yeah, only in the instances when it matters to us. (laughs) And and for for a woman, obviously, for a woman, the the rules are entirely different. Totally, and, and so there, there's a there's a huge uh, power asymmetry uh, going Absolutely. on regarding sex, and and I think in my own research it seems to me that within it's within Greco-Roman Judaism that you begin to develop a little bit of parody, where thanks to Greek philosophy it's like okay these should probably be more or less the same rules for for both sides, and and well, I think yeah, you, I, sorry, I, I just one of the things that that. Kind of, I've been processing this whole time ever since you talked about First Corinthians, uh, Jennifer. Is it, I it blew my mind because I've never caught it before. All I've ever heard about is the husband has the man has a, like uh, what is it, authority over the wife's body. I didn't ever catch that. It also says the opposite. That, that yep. it also says the wife right. has authority over the the yep. the, the, the man's body. I, I, you don't hear that one talked about much, do you? No, you don't. It's I mean, the one moment of equality in a marriage that's talked about in the Bible. That's it right there. That verse. I, I think I have heard it when, um, usually by men, where they're <laughs> asserting, hey, I, you need to give it to me whenever I want it. And if there's objection, they're like, hey, the text says you can mm-hmm. do the same. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is... <laughs> This is reciprocal. There's nothing wrong with this. I'm not, this is not any kind of unrighteous right. dominion or anything yeah. I'm exercising yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> it, no, does, it does seem like there's a loophole where if the woman wants to say, I don't want to have sex with you, she she can take That's dominion it. over his body and just say, no, turn that body around and That's make right. it go That's away right. from me. That's it right. Seems, it, seems, it seems like at some point uh, we're back to autonomy. It, if if you take it all the way to its natural right. conclusion, but just that, as Agreed. you point out, Jennifer, yes. just that section of First Corinthians and the rest of it is just the man gets to basically own Do the woman. What he wants, yeah. And in um in First Thessalonians chapter four, we also have some discussion about sex, and that's where we find this interesting passage. It's been translated a lot of different ways. Um, the NRSV says. That uh, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control your own body in holiness and honor. And this is actually talking to men. Each one of you um, possesses your own vessel with holiness and uh, and honor, where the vessel here, I think um, uh, there are a number of scholars who have argued this is a reference to a sexual vessel, that mm-hmm. you possess your woman who has been um, framed here as a as a sexual vessel. So so Paul plenty of times um, asserts that power imbalance that this is still about a man um, dominating, possessing, mm-hmm. uh, taking uh, a woman. So the the passage in in first Corinthians is not uh, is not to suggest that Paul is um, 
is an ally uh, or <laughs> asserts total equality. Like Galatians 3 says right. there's neither man nor woman, but then you go over to other parts of Paul. Yeah, and, it's um, very clear. Yeah. It, it's almost like this book doesn't always agree with itself. That's it's almost, that's yeah, weird, almost right? as if it's definitely that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to bring up uh, uh, toward the end of the book, you talk a bit about Augustine mm. and how, how Augustine um, uh, thinks of sex as, uh, well, there's a lot of evil associated with, uh, with, with sex. And Augustine is one of, if not the most influential Christian yeah. of uh, the early centuries of Christianity. Yeah. Could, you, um, could you briefly talk about the influence that Augustine has had on how Christians think about sex? Sure, I'd be happy to. I, I have to say that I truly did not want to do this. I did not, I, as I was r- working on the first four chapters, I was like, I don't want to talk about Augustine. I don't, I don't like Augustine. I don't want to go there because I'd have to do, I have to be careful and I have to be a good scholar and I don't want to do that with his work and I just don't want to do it. And so finally I got to chapter, I got to chapter four on Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. And I was like, I can't ignore him any longer. So one of his treatises, one of his writings is called The Good of Marriage. And um, the good being a noun, not an adjective, right? The good things that come from marriage. And so he is needing to challenge or counter um, some people who were saying, who are taking this whole celibacy thing, even celibacy within a marriage, they're taking it way seriously and they're denigrating people who are having sex in marriage even. And they're denig- they're saying you're not as you're not as holy, you're not as good. And so there are two different groups of people in general that he's responding to specifically. But the fact that he has to the fact that what he's doing is trying to explain to people that marriage is actually okay is actually in itself pretty stunning, I think, right? And so what is it that he says that justifies being married? Right. The reasons that it is okay to marry or some of the goods of marriage. And so I'm just going to read his four reasons that marriage can be considered a good or we would say a good thing. But the Mm -hmm. goods of marriage are there are four of them. It is a good because of the procreation of children. It is a good because of the natural companionship between the two sexes. And he does mean asexually. He means that you two are good companions because once you see, you know, think of yourselves. Oh, it's just, it's a, it's, there's a lot. There's a lot. Okay. He does mean that. It's good for the companionship. He, number three is it is a good because it allows the couple to turn their evil lust toward the honorable task of begetting children. Mm. And then... <laughs> Right? It's and nice then, when you can use evil things for that honorable Isn't uh, it though? Yeah. <laughs> and then the fourth is the combination of the first three leads to the tempering of the concupiscence of the flesh, which is to say enjoying sexual passion and or pleasure. So it's te- you need to temper that. You, you're not supposed to enjoy sexual passions or pleasures. Um, and I'm quoting him here for a kind of dignity prevails when – as husband and wife, they unite in the the marriage act. They think of themselves as mother and father. Like, really take the romance out of this one. You know, it's not it's <laughs> yeah. not you, baby. It's you're the mother of my children that I'm going to, you know, whatever. So it, that's that's his he's trying to he's trying to prove to others that these are good things. Like this is okay. This is what can make marriage okay. So no wonder the church has this. Stre- like just procreation can only be in marriage because this is right. This is how it's all being justified yeah. and explained. And in that section, I called it a postscript, but I tried to help people who've never read Augustine see some of his ideas that undergird the, these four goods. Um, all I mean, it was you know, and I also outline the 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 kinds of critical lenses, the kinds of things I was looking for as I read through this treatise, The um, the Good of Marriage, just to see that this, the number of ways that he is presuming, he is assuming, he is pronouncing, right? All of these basic um, ideas that he's developed and that he's gotten from Paul, that he's gotten from scriptures, 
just so people can see how pervasive these, what I think are misinformed engagements with scripture um, are, he is asserting as true, right? And then, mm-hmm. and then is building on them. And it includes his understanding of original sin, but it's more than that. And it's, it's um, anyway, so I, I, I truly felt like I needed a shower every time I engaged his work. I just, it was really quite difficult. I felt abused by it, like mentally abused emotionally by what he's writing because of how many times and ways he would say something that was just, you need therapy, dude. You know, like that's what kept going through my mind. And it, yeah. and, and yet that's where we get these ideas that are so deeply entrenched for people around sex is only for marriage. Procreate, you know, children should only happen in marriage, right? That's, right. It comes from him, and it's awful. Interesting. Yeah. Well, we could go on about this for decades. It's, <laughs> it's it, it is a it is a ripe field for us to plow in. Uh, I. <laughs> That, that was that we, was a tricky metaphor. That was to, a tricky metaphor. I know. I, I was, was a, you know that you know that men thought of anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Jennifer Bird, I, yes. hopefully we'll have you on again. Thank you so much Thank for joining you. us. Uh, we, we do we do have a a limited time, so I'm yes, afraid we're gonna, understood. Yeah, uh, but Thank you are gonna you you are gonna join us for the the patrons only conversation as well yes. that people can yes. can come and uh, check out, but. For now, where can people go to find your work, to find you? Uh, g- give them your website again and, and all the sure. other places. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Dan. I, the easiest way is to go to my website because you can get to all the socials from there. Um, so jennifergracebird.com, and it's Jennifer with two N's, G-R-A-C-E-B-I-R-D. And um, yeah, I have I do a live stream once a week. I do you know little videos, not quite the same – not quite the same caliber as Dan uh, McClellan, but I'm getting there. I'm getting there. <laughs> and and the book is called, give us the title Mar- again. Yes, Marriage in the Bible, What Do the Texts Say? Excellent. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Friends at home, if you would like to be able to hear our extra content with Jennifer, you can go to patreon.com slash data over dogma and, uh, and join up as a patron. That also helps Make the whole show happen. Or you can reach us if you want to reach out to us at contact at dataoverdogmapod.com. And other than that, we'll see you again next week. Bye, everybody. Data Over Dogma is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. It is a production of Data Over Dogma Media, LLC. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.